The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies. My name is Daniel Port. I'm your host here every other week on the Pictureless Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us today. I hope everyone's gotten 2023 off to a good start. I think I've only written 2022 on about 30 or 40 different things so far in the past week. So hopefully you're off to a better start than I am. But it's been pretty good and we have a fun, fun episode to kick off of the year. We're going to talk about Bryce Harper today. Now, I know I mentioned that I wanted to have a guest for this episode, but with the holidays and with everything going on, it was kind of hard to get lined up with someone uh, and get someone on. So I figured, you know what, what the heck, let's just do it and see how it goes. So Bryce Harper's really interesting, at least to me, in that is a player who is weighted down both by the expectations that were laid upon him and, frankly, laid upon him by him by by himself. And I think everyone kind of has an opinion or a feeling about Bryce Harper, one way or the other. And he's not exactly controversial, but I think some people view him as sort of like the bad boy of baseball or, you know, the antithesis to Mike Trout. Or some people see him as the prodigy that he was built up to be. And some people sort of see him as someone who's failed to reach the hype that he has. And some see him as this huge superstar who is the face of baseball in a lot of different ways. And so everyone sort of has a different take on Bryce Harper. And this really sort of resonated with me because when I was a wee lad growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, back at you know the turn of the millennium, I remember hearing about a local star who everyone expected to be the next Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson going into the NBA. He was around my age. He was only about six months older than I was. And he was named LeBron James. And it's hard really to describe the hype that surrounded him if you weren't there to experience it. He was on the front page of the Plain Dealer. That's the large local paper in Cleveland. ESPN was covering his high school games on television. Everyone was talking about him. Everyone had an opinion about him. It really resonated throughout the entire city and eventually throughout the entire nation. And I had really never experienced anything like that as a teenager in that time period. And I haven't really experienced anything like that since. The closest I've ever seen since then, in terms of really hype on the national scale, was Bryce Harper. 
he was just 16 years old out of Las Vegas, Nevada, when he graced the cover of Sports Illustrated, who called him the most exciting sports prodigy since LeBron. And that really caught my eye, obviously, given my history. But the, the cover photo was jarring then, and it is now when you go back and look at it. Look it up. He, he looks young, you know, in the face. But the thing you can't ignore in that photo was his body. He already looked huge. I still have a hard time believing that's a 16-year-old in that cover photo. That's how big and how larger than life Bryce Harper already looked. It looked like he had the physique of a grown man, not someone who had really, frankly, just gotten their first driver's license. And at this point, he was already hitting 500-foot home runs as a high schooler and exuded a certain level of brash confidence you don't normally see in kids that age. To quote from that SI article, he stated his goals were, to be in the Hall of Fame, definitely. Play in the pinstripes. Be considered the greatest baseball player who ever lived. I can't wait. That's just not something you hear from your average 16-year-old. Usually there's a lot of statements about how they're happy to be there and they're honored to get the chance. And Bryce Harper's talking about how he's going to be the greatest ever. It just was not something we had really seen that often. By age 17, he had hit the longest home run ever hit in Tropicana Field and played multiple positions, including catcher, and he even pitched at the time. Now, Harper was demolishing the local high school pitching. It was the point where he really wasn't being challenged at all. And so unwilling to waste several years facing high school pitching, he instead went and got his GED during his junior year and went to play for the College of Southern Nevada, where he played catcher. And in just 66 college games, he hit 31 home runs with 98 RBIs. That's in just 66 college games. He basically hit a home run every other game while playing for the College of Southern Nevada. He also began to develop a a bit of a reputation sort of as a bad boy. He got ejected several times in his college career. uh, Really kind of was known for like arguing balls and strikes and things like that. But uh, he ends up receiving the Golden Spikes Award that year. And he gets drafted first overall by the Washington Nationals in 2010. That year he participated in the... uh, Arizona Fall League and was the second youngest player ever to do so. He flourished hitting 343 and really the hype at this point begins to reach a, a fever pitch. This would honestly only intensify as he hit 399 in spring training at just 18 years old. Now at this point there's no chance he's going to make the major league roster yet at that age and so they end up sending him down to a ball where he absolutely just demolishes the ball hitting 480 with seven home runs in 20 games, which earns him a quick promotion to AAA and an appearance in the Futures game. In what will become a pattern for Harper, sadly, his season has ended in August by a hamstring injury, but it was clear at this point Harper wouldn't spend very long in the minors. He starts a 2012 season at AAA, but doesn't stay there very long as he plays just 21 games there, and despite hitting just one home run with a 690 OPS, He's promoted to the Nationals in late April as an outfielder. It was the right call. He immediately adjusts and goes on an absolute tear. He hits 270 with an 819 OPS, which is good for a 118 OPS plus. With 22 home runs, 26 doubles, 9 triples, and 18 stolen bases in 139 games. As a rookie, he walked 9.4% of the time while striking out just 20.1% of the time. This would be the lowest walk rate of his career Harper goes on to win the Rookie of the Year in a landslide and is an all-star with a 5.2 war season. This was almost two war above the runner-up for the Rookie of the Year, Wade Miley, 
During that season, he stole home against the Phillies, becoming the first teenager to ever steal home. And when he hit his first home run, he was the youngest player to do so since Adrian Beltre in 1998. The Nationals do make the NLDS that year. They lose to St. Louis in five games where Harper largely struggles uh, with just three hits. But all of them actually were extra base hits. He had a double, a triple, and a home run in the series. Now, 2013 is another phenomenal year for Harper, considering he wasn't even old enough to buy beer yet. Despite missing time due to a knee injury, Harper hits 274 with 20 home runs, 24 doubles, and 11 stolen bases. To go with an 854 OPS, which is good for a 133 OPS plus, he goes to his second straight All-Star game while improving his walk rate to 12.3%, and he lowers his strikeout rate to 18.9%. It's worth noting that the Nationals finished second in the NL East with 86 wins and just missed the playoffs. In the offseason, Harper ends up having knee surgery to remove a bursa sack in his knee. Injuries rear their ugly head again for Harper as he tears the ulnar collateral ligament in his thumb sliding into third base in late April of 2014 forcing him to miss all of May and June of that year. Even when he came back, the side effects of the injury were clear as he hit just 13 home runs in 100 games with a 273 average, 10 doubles, 2 stolen bases, and a 768 OPS, which is good for a 111 OPS+. plus. He doesn't make the All-Star game that year, but the Nationals do make the playoffs. And while they lose in four games to the Giants in the NLDS, Harper is fantastic. He hits three home runs and a double to the tune of a 294 368882 slash line. Now, we move to 2015, and this is Harper's true superstar turn as he finally plays a full season at 153 games, and it is a doozy. He hits 330 with a league leading 42 home runs, 38 doubles, 99 RBIs, while leading the league in OPS with a 1.109 OPS, which is good for an astonishing 198 OPS+. plus. That means he was almost 100% better than the average hitter in that season. Just unbelievable. He has he scores 118 runs and has an OBP of 460, which is fantastic. You just don't see that that often. Uh, in addition... He posts a career-high walk rate at 19% to pair with a 20% uh, K percentage, which to nearly walk more than you struck out at that high of a rate is incredible. His 9.7 war led the league as well. In addition to going to his third All-Star game and winning his first Silver Slugger award, he wins his first MVP award in a landslide, making him the first Nationals uh, slash Expos player to win an MVP and was the youngest player to win it unanimously. To give you an idea of just how thoroughly he won this award, the second place finisher, Paul Goldschmidt, finished a full 1.4 war behind him. And it's really important to remember, he's just 22 at this point. You know, to be that good, that young, is absolutely incredible. For perspective, by war, or at least in terms of war, that's the third best season for a 22-year-old behind Ty Cobb in 1909 at 9.9 war and Ted Williams in 1941 with 10.4 war. Right, so hear that again. It was the best season for a 22-year-old since 1941. We had fought a world war somewhere between Ted Williams and Bryce Harper having two of the best 22-year-old seasons in the history of baseball. It's 
the fourth most home runs ever for a 22-year-old as well as the fifth highest OPS ever for a 22-year-old. It's just a true unicorn season. And sometimes I, I use that term too much, but we just hadn't really seen a 22-year-old season like this. And for someone so young to be this good this early is just incredible. You don't see it that often in a baseball generation. Now, despite Harper's dominance that season, the Nationals missed the playoffs after finishing second in the NL East once again that year. Now, coming off of that MVP season, 2016 was a difficult one for Harper, as the league threw a weird monkey wrench at him. And I kind of remember when this happened. They basically stopped pitching to him. He was walked constantly. There wasn't really ever given anything to hit. He was pitched around all the time. And it really seemed to sort of change the way Harper was approaching things. It was just a weird year. He was intentionally walked 20 times on the season. And in fact, in a series against the Cubs in May, Chicago elected to walk him 68% of the time across the four-game series. In one of those games, they literally elected to walk him six times. And I think in the seventh at-bat he had in the game, he got beaned in that at-bat. So teams were just wanted no part of him, wanted uh, to just pitch around him and move on to the next hitter. And this really creates a weird season for Harper. Uh, there's really no other way to put it. His power numbers stick around, but overall his numbers kind of crater. He hit just 24 home runs with 24 doubles. Uh, he has a 243 batting average and 814 OPS that season. He does steal 21 bases, which was the first time he had stolen more than six bags in, in roughly about three years. He is named an all-star that year. This made sense. He had 19 home runs at the break and was a 128 WRC plus hitter until the all-star game. It was really in the second half that did him in. He hits just five home runs in the latter half of the season. All in all, this adds up to a 1.5 war season, which feels too low for a player of his caliber. Washington, weirdly enough, does make the playoffs that season. It feels like whenever Harper excels, the Nationals didn't play well. And whenever Harper struggles or doesn't play quite to that full superstar caliber, Washington makes the playoffs. It really has got to be a frustrating thing when you look at Harper's legacy because one thing a lot of people will hold against him is his lack of playoff success. And it just feels like he and the Nationals could never get on the same page at the same time when it comes to one of them being good and the other one being good. But despite the Nationals making the playoffs that year, Harper struggles. He has just a double, but overall the Nationals as a whole struggle. They fall to the Dodgers in four games that year. Now, going from... 2016 to 2017. 2017 is a tumultuous, if mostly successful, season for Harper. In late May, bad blood between Harper and Giants reliever Hunter Strickland spilled over. Basically, Harper had hit m several home runs off of Hunter Strickland, and Strickland took that personally and beans Harper. And this leads to Harper charging the mound. I really remember when this happened. It ends up in this huge, giant bench-clearing brawl, and it got intense. It got nasty. Uh, really, there was multiple people throwing punches and wrestling around. And In fact, actually, 
it was such an intense brawl that Harper's teammate Mike Morse suffered a massive concussion, one that would actually really affect him for most of the rest of his career. And in fact, he really probably suffered that concussion taking a big body blow from Jeff Samarja, where he basically took the shot for Harper. Samarja was going after Harper, and Morse got in the way and took the took the shot from Samarja. It's just wild this all stemmed out of, you know, this sort of bad blood between Bryce Harper and Hunter Strickland. I think this is also, again, I mentioned it in the beginning, sometimes I think for certain people, Harper gets a bit of a bad boy reputation. And I think some of it's in the way he holds himself. He's a lot more confident. He's a lot more brash, uh, especially when you compare him to, say, Mike Trout, who's the biggest, you know, star of comparison for Harper at this time period. And in so many ways, Trout is the opposite of Harper. Trout is quiet and, you know, frankly, dull most of the time. Doesn't really give big answers or push the envelope. It doesn't really argue too much with the umps. Doesn't do these things that oftentimes Harper would be seen doing. And I think it's led to this place where Harper gets unfairly for some of the incidents surrounding him. Because I remember when this happened. And this is one of those situations where I feel like there had to be something else going on behind the scenes. Because the way the story is told is that Harper homered a couple times off of Strickland in the playoffs in 2014. And Strickland held a grudge about it. You know, whether he felt Harper pimped him too much or, you know, celebrated the home runs too much or something. But... You know, Strickland beans him. And if you watch the video of it, Strickland doesn't like it. It's not like where he threw like a weak curve ball into his hip or something like that to make a point. He throws a fastball right into his back. And obviously Harper's mad, but this is one of those things I feel like when he reacts the way he does, which if you watch, he throws down the bat, he goes sprinting out, he throws his helmet off to the side. Uh, like he's going to throw it at him and then realize at the last second he can't throw a helmet at someone because that is going to result in pretty heavy suspensions and things like that. There had to have been like words and things that happened behind the scenes that we didn't know about at some point to really escalate this even further. But, you know, I think sometimes, well, I don't condone violence or fighting in sports. I think we should evolve beyond that. I feel like if... Strickland is going to go after Harper in this situation the way he that he does. Harper has to make clear that that's not acceptable, right? And again, probably maybe could have handled it in different ways than charging the mound. But I, I get where he was coming from and why he was so frustrated and angry. And this fight just gets out of hand. Like I said, people are getting concussions. It just ends up in this huge, giant brawl in the middle of uh, this game. And really, by the way, I feel like the telltale sign of how maybe even the Giants felt about Hunter Strickland, but also felt about the situation was, normally when you see a batter start going after your pitcher, the first person who gets involved is the catcher, right? Usually the catcher gets between the hitter and his, his pitcher. Buster Posey, who's considered one of the nicest guys to ever play baseball, to back up Strickland in this situation. Basically, you... You're on your own. Uh, 
and never bats an eyelash, just stands behind home plate the entire time. And given sort of the what I know about baseball and have seen a lot of these things, I mean, I talked a couple weeks ago about Jason Farratek coming and standing up for, I believe, Bronson Arroyo when his big famous fight. I, I, th- I feel like that is a little telling on Buster Posey's part. Now, he comes back and then continues through the season until August. In August, he hyperextends his knee running out of ball at first base, causing him to miss a huge chunk of games. I actually remember when this happened, too. I was watching the game when it happened. It was one of those classic things that it looked like, and he hits it, and like you can just see his leg go to take the impact and buckle, and it just looked gross. I, at the time, I remember watching it. I'm like, he tore an ACL. That is it. That is as someone who's torn his ACL. I thought he was done. I thought he was done for the season. I thought he was done for a chunk of next year. I, I thought it was bad, and it looked bad. He looked like he was in so much pain at the time. And he ends up coming out of it relatively unscathed in terms of he ends up with just like a bruised knee. That was what they end up diagnosing it as. That no ligament damage, nothing. But he does end up missing a huge chunk of games because it turns out when you have a bruise in your knee, it's pretty hard to use that knee for things. Uh, when he does play, though, he's really good. He has a very, very good season. He has 319. He has 29 home runs, 27 doubles, 87 RBIs, and 95 runs scored with a 413 OBP and a 1.008 OPS, which is good for a 156 OPS+. plus. He was an all-star for the third straight season and even got some MVP votes that year despite missing so many games. The Nationals go on to win 97 games to win the NL East. Unfortunately, they are bounced in the NLDS by the Cubs in five games, where Harper largely struggles, hitting just 211 with a home run and three RBIs in the series. Now, in 2018, we sort of get another odd season. Now, whether this is the knee injury carrying over, into 2018 as he may now have gotten his usual sort of off-season regimen or it hadn't healed completely who knows but really for the first time Harper gets up to a a slow start uh to the year for the first time in his career he struggles to the tune of a 219 average in the first half the power was still there in droves he hits 21 home runs before the break and he walked an astonishing 29 percent of the time in the month of April which is crazy this is good enough to get him to his fourth straight All-Star game where he wins the home run derby. And after the break, though, he ends up turning things around in a big, big way. He hits 300 with an additional 11 home runs in the second half of the season. All in all for the season, he hits 249 with 34 home runs, 34 doubles, 100 RBIs, and 103 runs scored to go with a 393 OBP and an 889 OPS, which is good for a 133 OPS+. plus. That's also notable because he plays in 159 games that year, which was the first signs we're starting to see of a return to health and, frankly, good luck for Harper. The Nationals missed the playoffs that year, and they start acting really bizarre. Out of it for the year, they actually start shopping Harper at the deadline they were coming up on this was his last year of control for the Nationals and so they start looking for someone to trade Harper to so he doesn't walk for nothing and no one ends up trading for him and which is bizarre in and of itself maybe they're asking too much who knows but this ends up with them bizarrely placing him on waivers after the trade deadline which is an insulting move, frankly, 
It ends up actually the Dodgers claiming him on waivers, but then they weren't willing to trade any players for him. And this then leads to the Nationals having to pull him back because they weren't just going to give him away. And all this was just weird. It was just super bizarre. I mean, it's Bryce Harper. He's one of the best players in the league, and really no one wanted him. And, like, again, were the Nationals asking too much? Was it? Who knows? But uh, it's hard to think about if you're Bryce Harper, this doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth through the whole situation. He had already sort of been frustrated both visibly and oftentimes verbally frustrated with the process throughout the season. He would tell reporters that if they asked him about it, he'd just leave the interview or the you know, the press conference or whatever. It was very much one of these things that was clearly weighing on Harper a lot. And I don't know how, if you're a player with the type of pride and skill that Bryce Harper had, that you wouldn't leave this whole situation feeling a bit salty towards your current team and, frankly, a large chunk of the league at this point, right? So I know a lot of people were surprised, but I, you know, looking at that situation in retrospect, don't understand how we found it surprising that he would leave the Nationals, but he ends up going and signing with the Phillies, who offered him at the time the largest contract in Major League Baseball history. Eventually, Trout would break it later that year when he signed his 10-year extension with the Angels. But at the time, it was the biggest contract in MLB history. And I know, like I said, that some people hold this against Harper, but I also remember at the time, the Nationals were offering Harper contracts far lower in value than what Philly had paid him. And how could he say no to that? And you take that and combine that with the fact they literally tried to waive him. How's he not supposed to take that a bit personally, right? Now, before we jump into Harper's travels over to Pennsylvania and the great city of Philadelphia, let's take a real quick break here. And when we come back, we'll take a look at the Philadelphia years for Bryce Harper coming up to the present day. So, 2019, he moves over to Philadelphia and has a pretty successful Philly debut. He hits 260 with 35 home runs, 36 doubles, 114 RBIs, and 98 runs scored to go along with 15 stolen bases, a 372 on base percentage, and 882 OPS, which was good for a 126 OPS+. plus. He isn't named in the All-Star game that year, but it's not surprising, really. Uh, there was just a, a slew of outfielders that year in the National League having otherworldly first halves. Cody Bellinger and Charlie Blackmore chasing 400 in terms of batting average. Ron Lacuna Jr. was becoming a superstar and obliterating baseballs. It just was a you know a really stacked outfield that year. So it's not that shocking that Harper does not make the All-Star game that year. He does play in 157 games that year as well, marking the most games he played in back-to-back seasons at that point. The Phillies missed the playoffs that year, which only throws salt into the wound because this is the year that Harper's former team, the Nationals, go on a big Cinderella run to win the World Series that year. Again, this is one of the things that a lot of people lay at the feet of Harper, kind of saying, see, the moment you're gone, they go on to win. Like... I remember that run, and about 50 things had to go right during that run for them to make that run. It was a huge Cinderella story. It was really cool to see, but I don't think you can suddenly say it's because Harper wasn't there 
or that Harper is some kind of jinx or some kind of you know selfish player or some of these things that I, I remember people saying about him. Uh, it just that's sometimes the way that the cookie crumbles. The this is how things break sometimes in the game of baseball, and I don't think it's fair to say that it was on Harper in that sense. So now we go from 2019 into the maybe the weirdest season in baseball history, the COVID-19 season. The pandemic throws a huge spanner into the works of the 2020 season. In that, I mean, only 60 games are played. No one really knew who was going to play or really what the rules were going to be for half of it. It was a huge negotiation. Lots of infighting amongst the league and its players and the owners and everyone is just all over the place. What a weird year. It doesn't throw Harper off that much. He plays in 58 of the 60 games that season and is great. He hits 268 with 13 home runs and 8 stolen bases to go along with a 420 OBP and a 962 OPS, which is good for a 158 OPS+. plus. He leads the league in walks for the second time in the past three years as well. Unfortunately, Philly struggles. The entire rest of the team does not play particularly well. And he misses the playoffs that year again, which, as I mentioned, sort of starts to cause unfair whispers about whether or not Harper was overrated or if this was, you know, some kind of uh, a curse or if he had some kind of connection to why his teams consistently missed the playoffs or played well when he didn't or vice versa. Now... Harper takes this success in 2020, and he carries that momentum right over into 2021. He plays in 141 games that season, and he hits a fantastic 309 with 35 home runs, 42 doubles, 13 stolen bases, 84 RBIs, 101 runs, a 429 OBP, and a 1.044 OPS. This leads the league and was good for a 179 OPS+. Not only does this win him the Silver Slugger Award, but he wins his second MVP award in another landslide vote. Shockingly, because he got off to a bit of a slow start, he wasn't even an all-star that year. It's sort of one of those wild things where you're like, wait, he won the MVP but didn't make the all-star game? It's kind of bizarre. But when you see his second half, he hit 338 with 20 home runs and 28 doubles in the second half of the season, which is incredible. Now, while he certainly had an MVP caliber season, it was a bit controversial. Many made the argument that this MVP was driven by the narrative of just how good his second half was. Harper was worth just 5.9 more that year. He was hampered in a large part by his negative 1.3 defensive war on the season, while Juan Soto was worth 7.1 more. In fact, amongst those who got MVP votes that year, Harper was 10th. Again, it was still an MVP-worthy season, but I remember just how controversial it was at the time. Harper is now just the second player ever to win an MVP with two different teams before the age of 30, the only other one being Barry Bonds. Despite Harper's Herculean efforts on the season, Philly misses the playoffs yet again. And it's worth noting that these Philly teams were some of the most oddly assembled teams I'd ever seen. Basically, general manager Sam Fold and president of baseball operations Dave Dombrowski's approach had been to sign whatever major free agent they could get, regardless of fit, but also kind of refused to fix certain trouble spots on the roster. Amongst the starters, Didi Gregorius and Alec Baum 
Both had OPSs pluses under 76. And Odubel Herrera had an OPS plus of 95, which would be fine. I mean, not ideal or, frankly, even good, but fine if they were great defenders that year. But according to Baseball Savant's outs above average statistic, Gregorius was the worst defender in the league at negative 17 outs above average. Baum was worth negative 3 outs above average. And really, the only above average defender in the whole situation was a double Herrera, but was still only worth four outs above average. So, really just atrocious defense. And if you can't hit and you can't play defense, you're just dead weight pulling that team down that season. And those are two fine players, uh, Didi Gregorius and Alec Baum. So, I don't want to diss on them too much. But that season, it was a really weird fit. That's just too many weak points in that tough a division for you to make the playoffs. And I think it's hard to hold that against Harper, even though a lot of people do. 2022, though, would let Philly write their own Cinderella story. In the offseason, admittingly, some of the bizarre team building kind of continued. They added big-name free agents Kyle Schwarber to DH for the team in play, some left field, and Nick Castellanos to play right field. Now, both of those players are terrible defenders. Uh, great hitters, but terrible defenders. Matt Verling and Odubel Herrera, and eventually they would trade for Brandon Marsh, would share center field. And top prospect Bryson Stott stepped up into the shortstop position, moving D.D. Gregorius to the bench. Now, offensively, this was a powerhouse. That's a lot of good hitting. But defensively, it was an absolute disaster in the making, especially when you add in that Harper himself was not a great defender either. Now then, to make matters worse, on May 12th, Harper would get bitten by the bad luck injury bug again after several years of good health. He tears the UCL in his right elbow and was forced to DH for the rest of the season, which pushed the aforementioned defensively challenged Kyle Schwarber to left field full-time. No good. Nothing good could come of this for that outfield defense, but... Harper would only play in 99 games last year because of that elbow injury. But when he played, he was very good. He hits 286 with 18 home runs and 11 stolen bases and 28 doubles with an 877 OPS, which is good for a 145 OPS plus. Considering he was doing that with an injured elbow is super impressive. Somehow through it all, both Harper and the Phillies make it work. They Astonishingly, they make the playoffs. And mind you, it was an expanded playoffs, but they make the playoffs despite finishing third in the division. And sometimes with baseball, I think it's one of those funny things. While baseball is often about being the best team in the playoffs, oftentimes baseball is about catching fire, getting hot at the right time, entering the playoffs, right? You come in hot. You can run the table on some much better teams if you are in that zone and in that groove for a long enough period of time at the right time. And that's absolutely what Philly does here. They catch fire. They start to mosh the ball, winning games. And Harper was the hero of that team, sort of at the center of all of it. So to start with the wild card series against St. Louis, he's the game-winning hit in game two. It's a, a two-run home run. That's the, the decisive hit that allows the Phillies to advance. 
In the division series against Atlanta, he hits 500 with two home runs and three doubles with five RBIs across four games to lead the defeat of Atlanta. He stays hot in the NLCS against the Padres. He hits 400 across five games with two more home runs, five more RBIs, and three more doubles. He In Game 5, he hits the decisive home run that would end up sending Philly to the World Series, and he's actually named NLCS MVP. He does struggle in the World Series against Houston. He hits just 200 but he added another home run and a double across six games that was instrumental in willing this team to even get that far. This was just an incredible run. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Bryce Harper is I feel like when we get to the end of the story for Bryce Harper, when we write the book on Bryce Harper's career, this playoffs is going to be one of the signature moments in the Bryce Harper story. And it's fun because there's still so much of his story left to write. And it will be really exciting and really interesting to see if this is a springboard moment for him. If this does remain one of the larger signature moments in his career. It just was really fun to watch. And it was really fun to watch Harper sort of smash his way through some of those playoff demons. And finally find some success as a team making a run through the playoffs with Bryce Harper at the head of of all of that. Now, unfortunately, because of his elbow injury in the offseason, he has surgery to repair the tear in his elbow. And right now, he's expected to come back in the 2023 season just before the All-Star break. Hopefully, fingers crossed, his rehab and his recovery go well, and he's able to do just that. And hopefully, Philadelphia can keep things together long enough for him to come back and they can make another run coming into this because... I'd love to see Harper keep adding to this playoff legacy in Philadelphia despite this injury. And that's Harper's career so far. It's a a really solid, successful 11-year career. And I want to dive into Harper's legacy and the big picture look and the Hall of Fame and all these things. But before we do so, I want to take one more quick break here for me to get some water, catch my breath, and we'll be right back to ask the big questions about Bryce Harper. Welcome back. I feel like there are three big questions to answer about Bryce Harper before we try to rank him. And the first one is, has he lived up to the hype? You know, as we mentioned, he's on the covers of Sports Illustrated at 16 years old, he's being compared to LeBron James, who, if LeBron James isn't the greatest basketball player to ever live, he's certainly the second greatest, right? That do we think that calling Bryce Harper the next LeBron James was too much? Has he not lived up to that? Frankly, between you and me, I think he has lived the hype. For one thing, he's been one of the most exciting players of the last decade in baseball. It's hard to argue that Bryce Harper hasn't had a immense effect on the game of baseball and how we tell its story and how we experienced baseball over that time period, regardless of how you feel about him one way or the other. He has been one of the faces of baseball over that time period and has been a large piece of the success of baseball over that time period. But really to dive into it more from a statistical standpoint, let's put some things in perspective here. 
Since coming into the league in 2012, he has hit 285 home runs. That's seventh amongst all players over that time period. Amongst those players, the only player with a higher walk rate is Mike Trout. Only Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and Mike Trout have hit for a higher average. Only Goldschmidt and Trout have scored more runs, which is the same for Woba and stolen bases. If he hadn't been held back so much by injuries over this time period, he'd probably rank even higher amongst his peers. He's neck and neck with Nolan Arenado in war, despite being a poor defender. And of those six players with more home runs, only Arenado, Goldschmidt, and Trout have more war. Amongst right fielders, he's third in home runs, first in runs, first in RBIs, third in stolen bases, first in walks by a mile. It's like he literally leads right fielders and walks over this time period by 200 walks. It's insane. He's first in intentional walks. He's fourth in doubles, third in WRC+, plus, with almost double the games of Aaron Judge and Juan Soto, who are the only players ahead of him. Ditto for OPS, and he's second in war only to Mookie Betts amongst right fielders over this time period. If nothing else, regardless of what else you want to say about Bryce Harper, it's hard to make an argument against Bryce Harper being the best right fielder of his generation, or at least the top two between he and Betts. There's not really much else you can ask of a guy, really, in terms of living up to the hype. So for me, I feel like that is living up to the hype. And I know Harper said about wanting to be the greatest ever. And it's funny. I mean, I have a little podcast about debating it, but I don't think anyone actually agrees on who the greatest player of all time is. I think that that's an unrealistic expectation for Bryce Harper. I think at the end of the day, Harper has been a superstar, really a generational superstar has been one of the best players of his generation and, frankly, one of the best right fielders of his generation. That I think that is absolutely, to me, living up to the hype. Now, moving on from that question, the, uh, the really the, the last question is, what do we see for the future for Bryce Harper? And I guess with that, do we think he ends up a Hall of Famer? He's just 30 years old, and it's really a question of when do all these injuries start to take their toll? Right, We've seen this happen with so many players' careers where they get these injuries over their whole careers and they play through them or you don't really see the drop-off in their their numbers or the success. And suddenly they hit somewhere in their 30s and it craters. And it won't even be because they've had an injury. It's just because they all start to add up and they take their toll and they wear you down. And next thing you know, you're not swinging as fast or you're not seeing things as well or... Any of those things. And I think that's a matter of time. Father Time is undefeated in that sense. And it's just a question of when does that happen for Harper, given all of these major injuries he's had. He hasn't really had any like minor injuries. It, it, it kind of is really what sucks about it is that so many of his injuries are major ones. He's torn elbow ligaments. He's had Tommy John surgery now. Uh, torn ligaments in his thumbs. Major knee injuries. This all just starts to add up, right? My guess is we probably get four to six more peak years out of Harper. Maybe more if he's eventually moved out of the field to DH or something like that. And then probably another couple of years where he does indeed just DH somewhere. And maybe part-time plays or something along those lines, right? Now, he averages 33 home runs a season right now. And that feels right. Maybe 
take it a little bit lower, you know, when you consider that average factors in his injured years. But again, it's also worth noting he's going to miss half of this season. So we'll, we'll, we'll knock it down a little bit. Let's meet in the middle and say we get Harper averaging 28 home runs over the next five seasons. That would add another 140 home runs to his total, bring him to 420 home runs. Even if he moonlights DHing somewhere for another couple years, I can't imagine him getting the 500 home runs, but I could see him getting above 450 home runs. He'll probably get close to 200 stolen bases for his career as well, and probably end up close to 500 doubles, roughly. In terms of war, looking at Harper's career numbers, he reminds me a lot of the hitter version of Steve Carlton, and this will make some sense. And for the record, comparing him to Steve Carlton is not an insult. Steve Carlton won four Cy Youngs, so it's not meant to be like a rude comparison, so to say. But the thing about Carlton is that when he was at the top of his game, when he won those Cy Youngs, those seasons he was untouchable, was the best player in baseball, hands down, could not argue with it, right? And then right in between those electrifying seasons... He'd have the occasional stinker, two to three war seasons, and not even always necessarily because he plays bad, but because of his defense and injuries and whatnot. And I feel like Harper's done the same thing, where he'll have these nine war, eight war seasons where he is just the best player in baseball, an absolute superstar who can swing playoff races. And then he'll have a one and a half to two war season because he's fighting through an injury or because he struggled through this part of that season or whatnot. And that up and down kind of roller coaster career reminds me a lot of Steve Carlton. Now, through 11 seasons, he's sitting at 42.5 war. And he roughly averages about five war a season. So let's say he does that over another five seasons. That would give him the 67.5 war. That would already put him above other Hall of Fame right fielders, Vlad Guerrero Sr. and Dave Winfield, and would actually sit him just behind Tony Gwen at 69.2 war. That right there is probably enough to get him in. Now, if Bobby Abreu and Gary Sheffield, who have started to gain some momentum in their Hall of Fame cases, both sit at 60 war and they get in, that only strengthens his case. If he can manage to even piece together another couple seasons after that, they had like another 7 to 10 war from there as like a DH or something like that. It becomes an absolute sure thing. They'll put him past Larry Walker or Reggie Jackson. But I don't think he needs that. I think if he can get up to that 67 to 68 war, like I was saying, I think he's a shoe-in. So with that out of the way, and now we've kind of gone through the big picture, where does that leave us in terms of ranking Harper? So I pulled up the list, and real quick, I'm going to refresh us on the list and where things currently sit coming into this episode. So to re-read the top 10 here, that's Greg Maddox at number one, Ichiro Suzuki at number two, George Brett at number three, Adrian Beltre at number four, Clayton Kershaw at number five, Edgar Martinez at number six, Sandy Koufax at number seven, Tony Gwen at number eight. Hank Greenberg at number 9, and Joey Votto at number 10. Then, to give you an idea bumping up, number 15 is Willie Stargell. Jose Ramirez sits at number 20. Freddie Freeman sits at 25. Jim Cat is at number 30. Jorge Posada is number 35. Matt Williams is number 40. 
And at number 45 is Jason Bay. Number 50 is Mike Sweeney. And coming in at the end of our list is James Paxton with at number 53. Now, if you want to see the full list and where everyone ranks in, we got Johan Santana at number 14. We've got Mo Vaughn at 26. Evan Longoria at 33. See the whole list. It will be in the notes for this episode. So go check it out. It's a fun list, and I'd love to know what you think about it. But I'm jumping into uh, where to put Bryce Harper. So looking right around other players who are maybe his contemporaries, but we've also kind of done some projecting moving forward too. I'm thinking Jose Ramirez, who's there at number 20. And we put Jose Ramirez that high when I had Chad Young on talking about where we think he'll end up with his career. And we're doing the same thing with Harper here as well. And so the question is, do we expect him to end up having a better career than Jose Ramirez? And there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. They're actually pretty different players, really. Ramirez is a better defender, but Harper's a much better hitter. If you start making the comparisons here, Harper has... So uh, has more home runs than Ramirez, almost about 100. He has about 90 home runs more than Ramirez. He is a 142 OPS plus hitter for his career, whereas Jose Ramirez is a 129 OPS plus hitter. Harper has more doubles by about nine. He has more hits. He has a better batting average for his career, a better OBP, much better OPS by about 60 points. If we're talking just purely from a hitting standpoint, Bryce Harper is leaps and bounds a better hitter than Jose Ramirez. It isn't even a competition. Now, on the other hand, though, for his career, Bryce Harper's been worth negative 4.8 defensive war, whereas Jose Ramirez has been worth 5.4 war. So, obviously, Ramirez has been a much better defender than Harper, but also Harper does have him beat a little bit in overall war. Harper's at 42.5 war. Ramirez at 40.3 war. Harper's got almost 300 more, about about 200, I should say, about 200 and something runs scored more than Ramirez. He's got almost 150 RBIs more than him. He's not that far behind him in stolen bases. uh, Ramirez is about 50 stolen bases more than he does. I just look at it and I feel like as much as I love Jose Ramirez, it's one of my favorite players of all time, I think I think Harper goes ahead of him here. You then throw in all the fun hype and the stories and everything going in with Harper. I think you look at it, and, and by the way, that he's won two MVPs, uh, which is something that's eluded Jose Ramirez so far in his career. I think Harper goes above Ramirez. So now the question is, what do we think about uh, Harper compared to our number 19 on the list, which is Ryan Sandberg. Now, Sandberg, again, is a player I love. Uh, one of my favorite players from my youth. And, again, we're projecting a, a player... We're projecting that Harper will continue to play at this level for a while and end up in the same vein uh, as Sandberg would, for the record, 68 war. That's right around what we are saying we think uh, Harper could probably get to here. Ramirez was a better defender but not as good of a hitter as Harper. Sandberg was an elite defender, uh, one of the better defenders ever, really, frankly. And he was worth, to give you a 13.5 defensive war, again, compared to Harper's negative 4.8 war. 
But with that being said, despite the fact that Sandberg was a much better defender than than Harper is, Sandberg was a 114 OPS plus hitter compared to uh, Harper's 142. Already, Harper's hit more home runs than Sandberg did in his career, and has had half of the length of a you know he's played only 11 years. Sandberg played uh, 16 or 17 years. He's only about 100 doubles behind Sandberg. He's not going to catch him in stolen bases. Sandberg stole 344 bases. Harper's only at 122. Like I said, I think he'll probably get to like 200 or so in his career. But, you know, Sandberg had a 285 career batting average, whereas Harper's at 280. But Sandberg was only 344 OBP. Again, Harper's got almost 50 points in OBP on him. And had a 913 career OPS so far. Whereas Sandberg is just 796. So at this point, I think Harper is again going to move up based on just the sheer amount of, just by how much better a hitter he is than Sandberg. Because if you start projecting it out, if he does get to that roughly 400 plus home runs, I think he will get to in his career, you're talking about he'll have hit almost 250 some odd home runs more than Sandberg. And I think at that point, it's kind of hard to really put Sandberg ahead of that based on just how good a hitter Harper was. So I think right now, my gut tells me to put Harper in front of Sandberg. So that moves us up to comparing Harper to our number 18 hitter, which is Robin Yount. Now, Looking at Yount and him side by side, again, this is to a certain degree an unfair comparison projecting was, but Yount ended up roughly around, I believe, 77 war for his career, 77.4. And Harper, again, is at 42. We were thinking it would be a huge leap if he got up in the the mid to high 70s in war for his career. So I don't necessarily know if that's realistic, but... Uh, Yount played for 19 years, so you don't know if, if Harper could pull out nine more years in his career, that would be, you know, he could probably still get there. And again, Harper's a much better hitter than Yount in the sense of just pure power as a pure hitter. That Yount had a 115 OPS plus for his career, whereas again, Harper's at 142. He already has more home runs than Yount did in his 19-year career. He's not that far behind him in stolen bases. Yount stole 271. Again, if Harper gets up to that 200, it's not that far behind. But then on the other hand, Robin Yount had 3,000 hits. And I mean that's a testament to the longevity of his career. Yount was a 285 hitter, but then also was a, had just a 772 OPS compared to Harper's 913 OPS. And Harper has about 50 points of OBP on him. It's just one of those sort of things where, again, we're asking ourselves, does the hitter outweigh the defense? And Yount wasn't as lead to defender like Sandberg. He's just 6.8 defensive four, but still a lot more than Harper's negative 4.8. And this is one I struggle with because also, like, you can argue Harper goes above Sandberg for winning two MVPs where Sandberg only won one. But... Yount also won two MVPs, and so it becomes this thing where you you kind of are asking yourself, are these guys pretty much equal? But then you look at Yount already is a Hall of Famer. 
you know, won the same amount of MVPs, has 3,000 hits, has the longevity, and has the war to a level which, like, I, I just don't, I don't know if I can project Bryce Harper to get up in the, the mid-70s or upper 70s for war unless I see sustained health beyond those four to five years that I kind of projected. So I think that's right where I'm thinking is I can't really put him past Yount. So I think at that point, uh, what I will do is say that Bryce Harper should be our new number 19, seated right between Robin Yount and Ryan Sandberg. I'm pretty happy with that. I think that's a good spot for him. I think uh, that is proper respect to Harper and the hype that he, he got coming in and what he's able to accomplish so far in the league while also not projecting too hard to his future or trying to give him too much without him having done it yet. I think right between Robin Yount and Ryan Sandberg is a good spot. So that's right. Bryce Harper is our new number 19 on the list. So that's our episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. I'm not sure who we're going to talk about in the next episode. It'll try to be uh, kind of part two to this episode where, again, I will try to take probably a player from the past and compare them to Harper and, you know, sort of draw some comparisons and use them as illustrations of where Harper could go with his career or just players have gone through similar things like that hype. It's really funny because Yount was also a much hyped younger player who uh, made big leaps in his career at 18 and 19 years old as well. So there's a lot of similarities there um, between those two players, but I'll try to find a good comparison for us for the next episode. So tune in. Don't miss part two in two weeks. Other than that, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Welcome to 2023. I'm looking forward to a full year of podcasting with you. And before we know it, we're going to have pitchers and catchers reporting. And we're going to start getting ready for spring training. And everything's going to be fun. And we're going to start talking about Hall of Fame arguments and things like that. It's just going to be a great, great, great offseason. You can reach the podcast at lb legacies on twitter if you have any comments on the list or if you want to make some comments about the episode or any other episode we've done if you want to send me an email you can send it at longballlegacies at gmail.com or you can always reach out to me at daniel j port i try to respond to everything in a timely manner so feel free to hit me up or if there's a player you want to see me talk about or something i may have missed please don't hesitate to uh, reach out let's talk baseball it'll be great Uh, other than that enjoy the rest of your saturday folks and uh, have a good one